with you again. <clears throat> if I lose my voice in the middle of this lesson, I suppose it's all Jeannie's fault. Michael even pointed her out. No, we, we had fun this afternoon singing, uh, practicing for the upcoming uh, Praise and Harmony recording down in Plano in a few weeks. And, and it's neat to see music bringing people together. We, we say that it does that, but we get to see things like that uh, uh, there was a group from a couple of singing groups uh, from Poto that came over, so uh, we all practiced together, and it's neat. Voices singing together, singing the same words, singing the same notes in the harmony parts. It really does bring people together, and and you you begin to to bridge gaps and and to create relationships uh, at a more advanced pace when you're singing together because you're already doing something that. Uh, uh, you're concentrating on one another. You're listening to one another. Fantastic. So I appreciate whenever we can get people singing together. But she's kind of a taskmaster. Um, the whip was cracked. Hebrews chapter 1 is our text. Um, I had been preaching for maybe a year. And so I don't know, maybe... Maybe Brother Chadwell can tell us at what point someone becomes an experienced and seasoned preacher, but I know at year one I was not. And, and um, Sister Parker came in, and we'd never seen her before, and it was a small town and a small country church, and you know, you know everybody, and, and nobody really knew her, and she came on a Wednesday night. And you know, if people come on Sunday night or Wednesday night, you, you know they're already, you know, more part of the inner circle because they are there on that occasion. And so we sat and visited with her, and she, she said she had more recently moved to our community, but that she was very familiar with the church, and, and she would appreciate it if we could start giving her rides to services. And so the more we found out about her, she was a new resident of the nursing home there in our community, and and so we got to know her. And being the preacher, you, you go and you visit people who start visiting your congregation and you try to, to get to know them and, and hopefully they can gain some insight into the, into the church family and you can build those good relationships. And uh, as, I, as I visited with her several occasions and began to talk to her and heard her story of Probably it was some mental decline, probably some, some genuine mental health issues that needed to be addressed with her. But she began to tell me about dark and terrible things that she felt like doing, things she was, was motivated to do, and, and things that the voices in her head encouraged her to do. And it's, uh, it's, it's nothing comfortable, it's, it's creepy, it's scary, it's overwhelming, it's, it's nothing that you want to hear from someone, but uh, she began to keep telling me these things, and she says, I can't shut them off, what do I do? Because, well, some of the things that, that she was wanting to do, based on what she was hearing, these things were, were criminal, even, and dangerous. And so what do you say? Because you're, you're the young preacher boy who really has very little life experience. And here she is, a senior citizen, come to you. And she says, what do I do? Because I'm hearing all of these crazy things. And you can't say, well, you're crazy. <laughs> and so I thought about it and I prayed about it and I went back and visited with her. And, 
And I finally, uh, through some wisdom gleaned from others, said, uh, Mrs. Parker, I, I don't doubt at all that you hear all sorts of things. And it's not my place to tell her whether, whether she's actually hearing a voice, whether it's something demonic, whether it's some form or projection of mental illness. I, that really is neither here nor there. She is being encouraged to do all sorts of things, moved and manipulated to do these things that would take her farther away from Jesus. And so what is my responsibility as a preacher? To help her hear the one voice that she needs to be listening to. And friends, as much as we might see that as an extreme situation, and I think it really was, it, it definitely left an impression on me as a 21, 22-year-old preacher, but, but that's really the same situation you and I find ourselves in regularly. We hear all sorts of voices from the world around us. In fact, we invite these voices into our homes and into our lives. Every time you fire up the computer, it's so that someone can talk to you or someone can communicate to you. Every time the radio is turned on, there are messages being sent to us through those songs and through those broadcasts. When you turn the television on, don't you think those companies and those producers and those actors and writers, don't they have a message to communicate and a story to tell? And if we were honest as we evaluated those things, if we really listened to them for their content and for what they were encouraging us to do, the lifestyles they were encouraging us to, to engage or the things that they wanted us to accept or the worldview that they wanted us to embrace, very few of those things that are fueled from the world around us would bring us closer to Christ if we engaged with those things. And so you and I hear voices quite regularly. And maybe not in the same way that Mrs. Parker did. But you and I are inundated day in and day out with voices. And with encouragements and solicitations. And, and it, it's almost like, you remember the old cartoons. Now here's another message that's being sent by, by media. But do you remember the old uh, Warner Brothers cartoons where you've got uh, Daffy Duck and, and he's, got, he's got temper and he's got anger issues and as he's contemplating should I or shouldn't I, what appears on his shoulder? You've got the little devil and you've got the little angel and which one should he listen to? And because he's Daffy Duck and because we laugh at doing the wrong thing, he flicks the angel off his shoulder and he listens to the devil every time. And usually the story ends up, is the, the funny part is the unfolding of all of this comedy of errors as he now has to pay the price for engaging in whatever activity that little devil had told him was just right. I don't think we have little devils hovering over our shoulders. But we do have communicators whispering in our ears all the time. As if to tell us that this world in which we live, and this world that seems so real, that it's really all there is to life. The messages would tell us things like all the money that you can amass in this world, that that is where you find your value. The message of this world might be if you can stake out a piece of property for yourself and build your dream home, then you have truly found the place that your soul can rest. That if you can just find pleasure, if you can find money, if you can find happiness in, in anything in this world, then you can be 
you can be at peace because, because this world is all there is. And we, we know that's not true. We say that's not true. We testify that it's not true. The, the book of Hebrews looks at the world and acknowledges, the, acknowledges that this is tangible. Sure, you can touch it. Sure, you can feel it. Sure, you can experience it. But this is not the truest reality. In fact, the book of Hebrews uses a language of the world to come. As if to say this world, as, as real as it is, as, as substantive as it is, as tangible as it is, this is not all there is. In fact, this is just a shadow. This is just a, a temporary glimpse at something that is much more real. Now, friends, you and I, uh, we, we go out in the summertime and you open your door and you take a whiff of fresh summer air, and if it doesn't set your allergies off, then on the other hand, you might just catch a whiff of somebody grilling a steak in the backyard. And what does that smell like? It's good eating. You wonder, is your invitation coming? And as delightful as the scent is, you know you cannot satisfy your hunger just by smelling somebody else's steak cooking next door, can you? But that's what you and I do when we are satisfied hearing the messages of this world, hearing the words of this world, and saying, you know, it's good enough for me. We settle so often for what's good enough rather than waiting for the better thing, the best things that God has in store for us. You think of, of, of the message, and I'm, I'm borrowing lots of themes from the book of Hebrews, and I promise we'll get into the text here in just a minute. But do but you remember in chapter 11 how all these great heroes are, are discussed and, and mentioned in, in, in the one or two big stories that they uh, factor in in the Old Testament? And Moses is the one that comes to mind right now, that Moses had a pretty good life. He had been saved, unlike most male children of his generation, he'd been saved from the river, he'd been saved from, from exposure and death, grew up in the house of Pharaoh. Very few would have had any life like his in the whole world. But the, the text of chapter 11 says, by faith, Moses didn't think it was worth holding on to all of those worldly things, all of those experiences, all of those opportunities and all those options, if it meant that he couldn't have what God wanted him to have. And that's an oversimplification, but if you look through all of those different examples in Hebrews, that's the gist of all of them is if they had to let go of what God intended for them or the reality that God said existed, if they couldn't have what God wanted for them, then it wasn't worth holding on to the things of this world, and so they let go. And so for you and I tonight, the voices that we hear and the voices that we listen to are going to be a big part of our, our lesson and our study as we think about how we submit ourselves to God or whether we submit ourselves to all these other voices and all these other things that are in the world. We, we might remember John chapter 1. Jesus, or John says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. In fact, the Word was God. And you can dig a lot of, you can dig very deeply into that metaphor, into that word picture. 
and think of all the different ways that the Greeks understood the word, the, the logos that held the universe together. You could think back to some, some Hebrew concepts of God as he, in the beginning, God spoke. And in the very words of God, there was power to speak the world into existence. The word of God was, was a powerful picture. And John says Jesus is all of that power actually putting on flesh all of that dynamic working in this world it is that that part of god putting on flesh to live among us and the author of the book of hebrews says something about listening to the very words of god long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our forefathers through the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he has created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so the book of Hebrews, if he's going to, to talk about things that are better and things that are best, if he's going to be making comparisons between God's voice and the voice of this world, between God's reality and the realities of this world, he's, he's not going to waste any time. He will start talking about Jesus as if to say, if you start here, then it becomes clear very, very easily how much everything else in all of existence pales in comparison to Jesus. You know, we sing a song sometimes that turn your eyes upon Jesus and, and when you do so, all the things of this earth grow strangely dim. And I love that song because it, it says I, I can still see the things of this world. Oh, I'm aware of them, but, but th that's not what's in focus anymore. The spotlight is not on the things of this world as I turn my eyes upon Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews invites us to look at him, and in this metaphor, to listen to him. God is a communicating God, and we know that all the way back in the beginning. In the beginning, God created, and he creates by the power of his word. And he says here that God has spoken in all sorts of different ways, and maybe that has some relation to all the different ways that he spoke to the prophets, some in direct revelation, some in dreams. I, but it, whatever it was, it wasn't the whole package he says, even in comparison to what God has done in the past, Jesus is bigger, Jesus is better, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He is, he's the final act. And so in Jesus, God has summed it all up. God spoke in all these different ways then, but now. And the neat thing about being in Christ, the neat thing about having this Christian perspective is is as the Hebrew author says, there was, there was the world that was, and there's the world that is to come. And he says, in this world that is to come, in this existence of the Messiah, he says, in these last days, now he has spoken to us by his Son. Whatever the Father says is what the Son says. And what the Son says He got from the Father. And that's the beautiful relationship between 
God and Jesus. And he highlights it in the next phrase when he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Sometimes philosophers and theologians have argued and tried to, tried to parse out exactly how far can you separate Jesus and God or how closely can you smush them together. And there's been debates for centuries about all those details. And I don't have all the information and all of the philosophical descriptions, but here it says Jesus, who is somehow different from the Father, is made up of the same stuff as God. In fact, he is the exact representation. You know what that says? You know how to translate that into Oki and Arki? He's the spitting image of his father, that he looks just like him. Of course he does. He's made of the same stuff. People look at my boys and they say, wow, they, you know, the apple didn't far fall from the, apple didn't fall far from the tree. And my usual response is, you know, whatever they got, they came by it naturally for better or worse, that they're made up of the same stuff. And whatever the divinity of God is and means in all of its fullness, Jesus is all of that. And it's beautiful. He is the radiance of His glory. That is, if, if God were to pop into the room, all eyes would be on Him. And, and He would outshine everyone and everything else. And He says, Jesus is that Jesus is that shining part of God. And so you notice, even as Jesus being a man, as he walks into a room or walks into a city or approaches any scenario, all eyes are on whom? Everybody looks at Jesus. Everybody listens for Jesus. In fact, that's what drove the Pharisees. That's what drove the the scribes. That's what drove the leaders of the people into such a frenzy and fury is they were used to being large and in charge. They were the ones that when they walked into a room, they commanded everyone's attention, and rightly so. They had the money, they had the power, they had the religious office, they had the uniform, they had everything that would cause men to look at them. And Jesus had nothing. Or, when we say Jesus had nothing, what did Jesus really have? He had everything that counted See, in the message of the world, in the evaluation of the world, Jesus had nothing. But he had everything that really counted. He had everything that was of true substance. He had everything that was really real. What did the Pharisees, the scribes, and the leaders, what did they have? Absolutely nothing. In fact, Jesus critiques them by saying, you know, you could go to a cemetery and you could see this beautiful mausoleum and it would be, it would be whitewashed and polished on the outside and clean and the grass around it manicured. But you go inside and what is it full of? Death. And that's who you are. Because you've listened to the voice of this world. You've valued the things of this world and you have not valued the things of God. And so when you made your choice, which one you would have? You took the things of this world. Jesus, the exact representation of the glory of God and the imprint of his very nature, upholds the universe by the world, uh, by, excuse me, by the word of his power. And again, I don't know what it all means, but I stand in awe of such a statement that it says that, that all of this that exists, Jesus was there in the beginning when God created and Jesus sustains it even still today. He spoke it into existence and he speaks its continuation 
even unto this day. So that's who he is as he begins to introduce himself, be introduced and have a resume. Here's what he does. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And yeah, we, we, we hear this, this idea of he made purification and, and he hasn't gotten into the details, but you and I know that this is, this is the atonement, this is the sacrifice that Jesus voluntarily submits to the will of the Father and he dies on the cross and he is the fulfillment of everything that, that had been packed into that mosaic system and the sacrifices and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not only the sacrifice, but he is at the same time the high priest who offers the sacrifice and administers it. And when he's done with all of his work, what does he do? He sits down because there's nothing left to do. You can't really imagine God being a God of half measures, can you? God is not someone who starts a project and doesn't finish it. And so Jesus, since he's like his daddy, Jesus starts something and he sees it through. And they said of Jesus, he does all things well. He does this all the way. He finishes it. He sits down at the right hand of majesty on high. Uh, I don't know. We don't have any. We don't have the little little short pews up front or anything like that. But but you've seen things like that. More of a love seat sized place to sit where there's room for two or or perhaps even three individuals. In the Near Eastern world, a throne looked more like that. We think of a throne and there's a place for just one monarch to sit and reign. But in the Near Eastern world, it was more of a love seat and a short bench. And so the person who sat at the right hand, it was not even sitting at a lower place. It was here. And God pats the seat. Come sit with me. And he sits in the very throne of God. And he reigns and he rules with his father. Is there any voice that's uh, superior to listen to? Is there any message? When, when we begin to see the grandeur of the picture that the author of Hebrews paints, there's no other voice worth listening to. No one else could have the perspective, the wisdom, the power. No one else could have everything Jesus has as He speaks to us or as God speaks to us through Him. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He says there's all sorts of voices you could hear. There's all sorts of messages coming to us in this world, but there's only one voice through whom God has spoken and continues to speak. Let's jump to chapter 2. So Jesus is everything. He's always been, but, but he's been manifested in a special way. He's been given to men. He's been shown to us. So we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, friends, let's remember the context of the book. He's not necessarily saying everything in the past was better, that you've got to remember every sermon you've heard in the 20 years, 30 years, 40 years that you've been a follower of Christ and, and try to recall all those things and the way we did it back then was better. That's not what he's saying, is it? When he says we must not drift from what we have heard, what is it that we have heard? We've heard Jesus. That's the context from chapter 1. We have been listening to Jesus. 
There was, there was all sorts of other voices in the world. In fact, in previous times, God even spoke in all these different ways to the prophets, but now there's one voice speaking, and we don't dare lose track of that one voice. And so this is what I counseled Sister Parker, was you may be hearing all sorts of things. I don't doubt it, and I can't speak to the contrary. But you only need to tune in to the one voice of Jesus, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, here's his comparison. That's the Old Testament. That's, that's the law of Moses delivered by angels. He said, so if, if the Old Testament, if God expected people to hear it and do something with it, hold on to it, not drift from it, if on the one hand that, then verse 3, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Friends, the person who loses faith or who loses spiritual strength usually doesn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm done with all this. You know, I've been a church-going person all of my life, but, you know, today I just don't feel like it. Well, I suppose it happens. But normally, there's a process. We find ourselves growing weaker. We find ourselves, well, I, I don't need to pray today. I prayed yesterday, and surely I'll pray tomorrow. I, I could skip today. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't need to participate. Maybe I don't need to go. Maybe I don't need to open my Bible and study. Maybe I don't need to meditate on the Lord and His work in my life. Maybe I don't need to plan for the future and, and what I need to be doing in the service of God's kingdom. But, but whatever it is, step by step, we begin to regress. And he says, we begin to neglect so great a salvation the only way that you and I can neglect so great a salvation is if we begin to neglect so great a Savior. Because he says that's what saves you is Jesus. Hearing the voice of Jesus, staying anchored to the person and the work of Jesus. And so when we begin to neglect things of, of God's spiritual truth and His spiritual reality, what's at the core? Who is at the core of God's spiritual truth and God's spiritual reality? God's spiritual kingdom. Jesus. And he says, woe unto us if we begin to forget all the things that are around him because sooner or later that forgetfulness, that neglect will begin to encroach even upon him and our connection to him. He says we must not drift away from Jesus this message of the Old Testament was so ingrained in people. But if they began to forget it, it would have been death for them. What would it be if you and I forgot the salvation that is dependent upon our great Savior? He says, This salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witnesses and signs and wonders and various miracles. Uh, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And he, he says, go back and, and think about the people for the first century. Think about those apostles whom you saw, who testified, who, who spoke about what they saw with their own eyes and the miracles that they wrought to testify that God's power was working in them. He said, our message is no less real than the message of Moses. In fact, it's more real. It has more substance it is greater because it's the fulfillment of everything that God has intended. 
as we continue to skip down just a little bit because we can't preach through every verse of every book, as fun as that might be for me. Let's skip down to verse 10, chapter 2. So we're listening for Jesus, lest we neglect. We're always straining to hear His voice. It's fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. I have two little boys who sometimes are told what to do one time and two times. And you think, surely on the third time, surely they're going to hear me. But you finally corral them and you ask them the question, didn't you hear what I told you? And what do you think the answer is? I didn't hear that. When did you say that? Like I told you. And and like any good parent, you get to that point, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, I've told you a million times. Somehow, kids running 100 miles an hour in that direction aren't always tuned in to the voice of their parents who are uh, sluggishly standing in one place as they holler after their kids. Jesus, Jesus doesn't let us get that far away from him. See, in an effort to, to make, it, make the communication better, in an effort to, to bridge the gap and to bring himself closer to us so that there can be no misunderstanding, so that there can be no, no excuse of, I, I couldn't hear your voice. I didn't know what you sounded like. What does he do? It was fitting that he, for, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. That's Jesus. It's fitting that Jesus, uh, or rather, rather God making Jesus, should be should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. What does Jesus do to bridge the gap so that we can hear him? He becomes one of us. He lives life as a man and in doing so gives us a perfect example of what it is to live out this life. And so as we read the Gospels, what are we doing? We shouldn't read the Gospels as a legal code so that we can know what our rights and responsibilities are in the Gospel as much as we should read the Gospel to be listening for Jesus. And it's like listening to the voice of a parent as as he instructs us what to do, as he gives us wisdom about how to live life, and he shows us what it is God wants from a discipled and pure life. And verse 14, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is God comes to your rescue in the person of Jesus. You always knew that God was powerful and you knew that he had some cosmic work to do, but the cosmic work of God is not just geared out towards the cosmos or other heavenly beings, but it is aimed at you and me. It's not the, offspring, it's not the angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Says he became one of us and planted a foot firmly in our world so that he would never be too far away from us, that we couldn't see him, that we couldn't hear him. Because it's all about listening to the voice of Jesus. And so we skip down to verse 7 of chapter 3. And the author, quoting from the Old Testament, says, Now, if today you hear his voice, if today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so what have we seen God doing? God speaks very clearly through Jesus. And just so that we don't misunderstand, or just so that we, to, to ensure that you and I can always see Him and always hear Him, Jesus becomes a man so that He can sympathize with us and be one with us. So if you hear his voice, listen. That's what we have to tell our boys because they're always going 100 miles an hour in the opposite direction. Listen. Listen. It is so easy to go on our way and say, God, would you please bless my mess than it is to ask for God's wisdom. Because we, when we ask for God's wisdom, then what do we have to wait on Him to do? Make us wiser. And you tell me, how quickly does wisdom come? It's a long process. James says, if, if you don't think yourself wise enough, well, don't worry, God isn't stingy. God's willing to help you out. Just ask for some wisdom. But then when you ask for it, You've got to wait for it to develop and for it to do its work. Listening for the voice of God. Now, as long as it might take for wisdom to do its work, let's go back to this story about Israel. Uh, they, they, are, they should have listened to God instead of rebelling against Him. Because they didn't listen to God, in terms of time and energy, what did that cost them? I think they probably would have been ahead if they had slowed down to listen rather than pressing ahead with their own plans, with their own ideas, and just throwing their hands up to God and saying, please bless my mass. Take care, he concludes. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And it's interesting. We've been using this, this idea that he's, he's thrown alongside of listening and so you would have those who listen and those who don't listen. But here he changes, begins to change the language. And the two kinds of people are still described, the listening and the non-listening. But now it's the obedient, excuse me, the believing and the unbelieving. Listening and unlistening, believing and disbelieving. And he begins to build some parallels here. Friends, if you and I don't listen to the voice of God, 
If we see what God wants us to do, if we hear what God wants us to do, if we are convicted of what the Word of God is speaking towards us, in either on the pages of Scripture or in the character of Jesus as it's revealed, what must we do? We must listen or else we become what? We become unbelievers. We'll give a, a foothold to this unbelieving heart. And what will that lead to? The text says, Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Over here it was don't drift. Here it's don't fall away. There it was be listening. Here it is be believing. And they're all synonyms to describe the same kinds of people. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Is it important for Christians to get together and be reminded of the spiritual truths that the Bible teaches? To be reminded of who God is and what He has done for us. It is very important. He even says every day. We think we're scoring pretty good points because we came back Sunday night. He says every day you recommit yourselves to repeating the truths of the Word of God. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we share in Christ... If in, for, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, what was our original confidence? What is it we heard in the very beginning? That Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. That He, he is the, 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 the glory of God and it's bright shining. That it's all about Him and listening to Him. Friends, you and I have all sorts of other voices trying to get our attention. All sorts of pictures, all sorts of messages, everything around us that would rather distract us from Jesus. But if we begin to listen to those other voices and let them take the place of Jesus, then we will drift. Then we will have an unbelieving heart then it will begin, before you know it, it will begin to, to be that door and that portal through which sin enters our lives. And so to guard against it, he says, we must be reminded regularly and we must speak to one another. This is one of those things that uh, the preacher is not the only one who should be speaking, is it? But we should speak to one another about the truth of who God is. For we share in Christ... If indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. And it's interesting, he begins to set up a cycle. He says in, in verse 18, they were disobedient. In verse 19, he calls them unbelieving. Which one were they? It's kind of hard to separate the two, isn't it? And in my, my understanding of how this works is if a person is unbelieving, where, what, what shape will their obedience be in? If you and I cannot believe and have faith and trust in the Word of God as spoken through Jesus, as manifested through Him, 
in the message of who God is. If you and I cannot have trust in that, then we will not obey it. But you know what? If we make a habit of not obeying what we say is true, guess what that will lead to? If our habit is to not obey, we will begin to lose trust. And it really doesn't matter where you get on this cycle. You can start with disobedience, and it will lead to a lack of faith and trust. Or you can have a lack of faith and trust, and it will take you to disobedience. And so he says the only cure is to stop whatever we're doing and to clear our minds of all the other voices. And sometimes they're loud, and sometimes they're pushy, and sometimes they're overwhelming. But you and I must listen to the one voice that is higher and more noble and more like God than all the other voices. He says, you want to know what the voice of Jesus sounds like? Well, it's the voice of God. After all, he is the exact representation of his nature. He is, he is this, this shining of his glory. If, you, if you've seen God, then you've seen Jesus. And if you've heard Jesus, you've heard God. And so listen for the one voice. I was in a Bible class a few weeks ago, and a person was, uh, was commenting, said, I, I, I had a, a moral situation in front of me. And, and it seemed to me like the, the right thing to do, according to the Word of God, was, was actually going to put me and my family in some danger. And so I took it to a bunch of spiritual counselors and advisors. I took it to some elders and I took it to some preachers and, and wiser, more experienced Christians. And I said, what do I do? And he said, every one of them told me, we know what the Bible says, but... And even if they didn't say it just like that, that was the, the gist and he said, you know, I took all this wise counsel and my wife and I prayed about it and we thought about it. We prayed. And he said, but, but then we kept coming back to this. We kept coming back to the voice of God. And we had to do it. Friends, watch what voices you're listening to. Now hopefully those kinds of spiritual mentors are also listening to this. I don't mean to put us on a, a witch hunt of some kind. But make sure that you're listening to the voice of God. Tonight, if there are other voices that are fighting for uh, supremacy in your mind and in your heart, if there are other voices that are pulling you away from God, and you tonight you need to refocus, and you need to cut out all the chatter and the noise from elsewhere, then this is a great, great time to ask for prayers, to ask for support, to help us refocus on hearing the voice of God is spoken through Jesus so that we don't drift, so that we don't have an evil, disobedient heart, that we don't find ourselves lacking faith. And if that describes you in any way, then guess what? We need to look back to see Jesus clearly and hear only His voice because we've bought in to hearing some other voice. If you have a need tonight, let us know what that is as we stand and as we sing.